we are in a series called Human. It's a great title. It's, you know, a great logo. And the question that we're trying to answer is, what does it mean to be a human being? Okay, really basic, simple question, right? It's one of those big questions, you know? Uh, where do we come from? What are we? Uh, when I was a freshman in college, I remember asking naively my sociology professor, Sociology 101, what is a human being? But what is a human being? And he said, oh, well, um, that's called an ultimate question. And we don't address ultimate questions here in Sociology 101. <laughs> and then we went on to study Karl Marx, who says that human beings are basically economic creatures, so homo economicus. And we studied Emil Durkheim, who says that human beings are basically bundles of desires constrained by society, homo eroticus. And then we studied uh, B.F. Skinner, in which human beings are just simply their environment, right? Homo environmentus, or whatever the Latin would be, right? In other words, we went ahead and answered the question in so many words, because you cannot escape certain fundamental questions. Your very existence draws you into asking these questions. And so we've been looking at this question, and guess what? Lo and behold, you're in church, and guess what we're doing in order to answer that question? We're looking at the Bible. Surprise, surprise, right? Okay, <laughs> you know, we're Christians. If you came to church, you don't know what you do in church. Well, Christians come to churches, and we're looking at the Bible to answer that question. But if you're not a Christian, the Bible's still a very interesting place to go to because the Bible is arguably the most read book in history. It has answered that question, what are human beings, for the majority, for, I mean, I would say majority, but for arguably billions of people now, right? It's been a source to answer this question. And so uh, it's a good place to go. Now, when you open the Bible, you don't get very far until you come to a very important text in answering the question, what is a human? Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. To be a human is to be created in the image of God. And here, the writer uh, inserts pretty quickly, male and female, he created them. Eve hasn't been created yet, but the writer knows that in the ancient Near East, the status of women is questionable. And so the writer goes ahead and makes sure we understand that this means that both men and women are created in the image of God. Created in the image of God. And so what that, that's a great answer. Yay. But what does that mean? What does that mean that we're created in the image of God? And, you know, there's been so many people who have tried to pinpoint what that is throughout history. And the basic method has all been the same. You know, only human beings in the creation story in the first chapter of Genesis are said to be created in the image of God. And so the idea is, well, maybe we can pinpoint the image of God by looking at what is it about human beings that is unique, that is distinct, that is unlike all the other aspects of creation, all the other creatures, and so this is the method. And then you have people like Irenaeus who says that, uh, you know, what it means to be in the image of God is to have reason, to have volition. Only human beings have this kind of robust volitional and rational power. Or you have people like Aquinas who says to be in the image of God is to have this kind of robust relational capacity. Or you have people like Calvin who say, well, it seems that there is certain kind of moral awarenesses that are part of the human condition. And we could go on. The whole history of theology really is about people trying to pinpoint what it means to be in the image of God. But there was a wonderful, wonderful kind of distillation of that project that was put forward by, lo and behold, yes, a Dutch Reformed theologian, my area of expertise, 
uh, named Herman Bovink, and he said this. He said, you know, a person does not bear or have the image of God, but he or she is the image of God. This image extends to the whole person. While all creatures display vestiges of God, only a human being is the image of God. In soul and body, in all their faculties and powers, in all conditions and relations. And so what he's saying is, is that the image of God is not a part of us. It's not a certain kind of part of who we are. Our entire self is the image of God. And so right now, we're sitting in a room with other images of God. Why don't you turn to your neighbor right now and say, good morning, image of God. Okay, great. All right, we're, we're getting somewhere. Okay, we're getting somewhere. But we still haven't really talked about the relevance question. What's the relevance of that? It's nice to have a new title and recognize that each person around us is in the image of God. But what is the relevance? And that is another thing that we've been teasing out in this series. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to tease out one more implication of being in the image of God, okay? And in particular, I want to do it by looking at the context of Genesis 1.27. I want to step back and say, hey, what's the context in which we read this verse about us being made in the image of God? So it'll be a little review of Genesis chapter 1 to get some context. And if you open your Bible and you turn to the very first lines in the Bible, you have this, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created, Okay. Uh, in the beginning, God created. These are the first lines in the Bible. And it describes God, it describes God in an action. God is working. God is, God is doing something. And what is he doing? What is the work that he's doing? Well, if you read to the next verse, it tells us the earth was formless and empty. It tells us that he's working with a formless and empty kind of thing. Okay, Hebrew, tohu wabohu, formless and empty. Now, there's different interpretations of this formless and empty. Some people think it, that the original earth was kind of like if you took you know, everything and just shook it up and it was just this kind of watery, soupy mess, you know. The text doesn't get into great detail, but it tells us that it definitely needs to be formed and it needs to be filled because it's not good as it is, right? And so then what happens if you read through the rest of the chapter, which I'm not going to go into great detail, but in the next 31 verses, you have God going to work. God goes to work. Six days. In six days, he goes to work dealing with this, okay? This is God's work week. In six days, he goes about dealing with the formlessness and the emptiness. And so in days one to three, God forms, okay? He separates the light and the darkness, because apparently it was just kind of gray blah. He separates them. And then he separates the waters above from the waters below. He creates the sky and the sea. And then on day three, he's further forming. These are all activities of forming. He's further forming by he has the dry land emerge from the water. So he separates those two. So these are all forming activities. Remember, the earth is formless. And then what does God do in days four to six? He fills. He takes that light and that darkness in the light. He puts the sun in the darkness. He puts the moon in the sky, he puts the birds of the heavens. In the sea, he puts the fish of the sea. And in the dry land, he creates all kinds of land creatures. He creates plants. He creates animals. And then as the climax of his creation, he creates human beings. And, it's, and that's where Genesis 1.27 comes in. In the image of God, he created them. That's the climax. 
So we see God's work week. God is engaged in six days of labor. And this is clearly an anthropomorphism, okay? We can get into all kinds of scientific discussions about whether it actually happened in six days. You don't have to have a a particular view on that to be a part of this church, okay? But clearly, this is an anthropomorphism. The Bible's filled with anthropomorphisms. For instance, the psalmist says that uh, in Psalm 19.1, that the the firmament proclaims his craftsmanship. In other words, God is like a fine craftsman, a master craftsman. You know, a master craftsman, if, I mean, we don't really have those anymore, but there used to be people that could make incredible things. You got to go to Europe now and go look at what they made, right? I mean, they could just take things and with such attention to detail and such a mind to exactness and such precision. And so, The psalmist there is using the analogy of God is like a master craftsman. All of Scripture really is analogical language. And here, the writer of Genesis, okay, goes through in that first chapter, and he uses all kinds of verbs to talk about God's actions. God is separating. God is making. God is calling. God is setting. God is forming. God is planting. God is working. And these are terms that are intentionally used for humans, for us to grapple and grasp with what God did. And the intention is for us to be able to relate God's work to our own work. And so if we were to take the whole kaleidoscope of human activity and continue the project of Genesis 1, we might say that God is like a project manager who needs to actually create a universe. And think about what it's like if you've got a big project. Imagine creating the universe. That's a large project. God is like a designer who designs a vast array of creatures, including the aardvark, you know, All those weird, funny creatures, right? God is like an engineer who engineers the periodic table, who engineers the human eye, engineers the human head. God is like an engineer. God has all these kind of qualities. God is a a gardener. He plants a garden. He gets his hands dirty like a gardener, okay? That would have, by the way, would have shocked people when they heard that God planted a garden. Like that would have been, we're going to get into that. That would have been like, what? What kind of God plants a garden? So when you look at these actions of what God is doing, clearly we are meant to uh, relate to God's work and connect our work to God's work. And if we were to put God's work in modern categories, we might see, in fact, God is a lot like a chemist. I mean, you've created the periodic table, and, a, and God is, if, if indeed this watery mess is just a mess, which a lot of interpreters say, God is like a first responder. You know, some of you parents go into your preschooler's room and it's like, this is tohu wabohu, disorderly, just a mess. We got to get this worked out here, okay? Some of you moms, can I get an amen from the moms? You know, every diaper is a tohu wabohu in my opinion, right? Every dirty diaper, right? So God is like a physicist, a project manager, architect, an artist, a builder. I work at the Center for Faith and Work and we take all these different professional Christians from around L.A., And we walk them through Genesis 1, and they end up listing all kinds of stuff. And and the whole point is, can you see that your work is meant to reflect in many ways the work of God? Can you see that? And they can, and it's exciting, and like the light bulb goes on, okay? And then we see that finally, when we get to chapter 2, and God rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. So God rests, okay? So what's our takeaway? Well, the first pass on this thing, one of the things that really stands out is that God is a worker. That's what we're supposed to get from Genesis chapter 1. God is a worker. And that, by the way, stands in large contrast to the gods in the ancient world. 
You know, the gods in the ancient world, they weren't known for being workers. They weren't planting gardens. The gods in the ancient world were known for celestial loafing. Okay, that's what they're good at. Oh, they might now and then have some kind of amorous excursion where they get up and get busy and then they lay back down. They might occasionally get up because, you know what, we need to boss the humans around and have a meeting and decide what they're going to do, but then they lay back down. God has a six-day work week. This would have grabbed the imagination of the original audience. This God of the Bible, this God of the Bible is a worker. This God of the Bible is a veritable dynamo of work and activity with all those heavy verbs. And in fact, if you continue to read on past Genesis chapter 1, you see that God continues to be a worker throughout the pages of the Bible. God continues to work throughout history. God works sustaining and providing and ultimately redeeming, which is God's incredible work throughout history. And so, when we return now, after that little tour, back to Genesis 1.27, lo and behold, we have some new context. And I'm going to add verse 28 just for more context. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue the earth. That word there, kabas, means to form it. To form it with a little bit of force, a little bit of energy. Form it. Fill and form it. We've just seen God form and fill. And now we reflect God. And one thing happens when you look into a mirror, you see the inverse. And God says, I just formed and filled, and now I want you to fill and form. You are the reflection of me in your work. You are to reflect me in your work. So the immediate context of this language of being in the image of God is a God who is working. That's the immediate context. And so while the image of God can't be reduced to any one activity or capacity or facility, yes to Herman Bobbing, one thing that we can't miss is that part of being in the image of God is reflecting God through engaged, purposeful, and I would add, though it's sometimes hard, joyful work. That is one of the ways we reflect the God of the universe. Work, another thing this tells us, by the way, is that work is, it is part of our humanity. It's not some distant thing that we need to somehow escape. It's actually wrapped up into what it means to be a human being. We're going to talk a little bit more about how human dignity is, is connected to our work. But what does it involve? Well, it involves forming and filling. It involves bringing purposeful order into different spheres of reality and then filling that order with good things. And so if you're a medical professional, what it means is you step into the disorder of a body that is lacking health, and you, and you bring order back to the body, and you, then you put the good gift of health into that body. You, you see that come about. If you're an engineer, you bring structural order, and you feel some kind of material thing with a certain kind of capacity to bring a good out. You, if you're an attorney, you step into conflict, and you fill that area of conflict with the good gift of justice, the order of justice. If you're an HR director like my wife, you bring order into the disordered human relationships in the workplace, and then you fill that workplace with a culture of kindness and courtesy. And yeah, if you're a parent, okay, every day you're going to be in your home, and you're going to go, you know what, we need to bring some order into this home. 
And hopefully you round the kids up and you teach them how to be image bearers too. So it's not just you, okay? And you say, we're gonna bring some order in this home. And then once you bring some order into the home, then you fill it with good things. Maybe a nice dinner. Definitely a culture of kindness. And in doing so, we reflect our good creator. So this is, by all means, what it, part of what it means to be in the image of God. We are made to work. Um, and in fact, if you miss it, <laughs> when you get to Genesis ch- chapter 2.15, we find out the very first thing God does. So the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. There you go, right? To work it. And, and, and by the way, I've often read this like, okay, so he's got he's to get his hands dirty too. God created the garden. Now I want you to continue doing that, right? And so we got to do this too. But one of the things that's surprising to me is that Work was part of paradise. Work was part of paradise. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament scholar, says that among the full range of delights here, the text clearly says the God who is absolute goodness, joy, and bliss works, and as he works, he creates image bearers and places them in an idyllic place called Eden so they can enjoy the delight of working. Some of you are saying, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second here. You don't know my work. You don't know my Monday mornings. Amen, honey? <laughs> my wife, every Monday morning, like, it's Monday. <laughs> you know? Well, don't worry. We haven't told the whole story here. We're only in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 3 is coming, and that's going to be the fall. That's going to be the story of how everything begins to unravel in ways. Okay? And, and, and when we get there, what we see is that these deeply woven interrelationships that are the sinews of the world become fractured and begin to fray as a result of humanity turning away from the very source and author of life, God himself. And then when that happens, what we see is we see that work is shifted. Work now takes place outside the garden. Adam and Eve, these image bearers, now find themselves tilling the ground with pain, giving birth with pain. Both of those words, by the way, in their own distinct kind of like activities, the woman says, she says you're going to give birth with pain, labor. The man is going to toil with labor. It's just labor. Labor's introduced to work outside the garden. Okay? So that is definitely part of it. And so all, and by the way, I mean, I think one of the main ways in which work is hard is because all relationships are ruptured outside the garden. You know, in our world, I mean, one of the hardest things is just getting along with the people you work with, right? You can have a great job, a job you love, and then you're like, but I have to work with so-and-so. I just talked to somebody, they're quitting the job they love because they have a new manager that they just cannot work with. And that's a big part of it too, right? Um, And we can go on. And so all this to say is that the Bible is very realistic. The Bible gives us a realistic uh, picture. Work, yes, it's good. It can be hard. Sometimes it can feel pointless, But here's the key thing to note. Work is not a curse. Work is not a part of the fall. That is not what work is. Work is something that that actually is a good gift. It's something that is meant to reflect being in the image of our creator. We're not in the garden, for sure. But work's also not all curse. Sometimes there are glimpses of the garden, okay? This is a work I did, all right? This, is, uh, I, I, this was just a nasty thing here. There was no fence. 
There was no concrete. There was nothing. I spent about six months just slowly. If the first part was buying a chainsaw and chopping down trees, thank God I didn't die. Like, there was times where I didn't want my wife to see what I was doing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, one time I, like, strapped myself onto this tree. Like, literally, I'm like, well, you know, how much do you want to take that? Ah, I can do this. This is how people die at my age, right? When that branch released from the chainsaw and that tree went side to side, I'm like, I'm never doing this again. I will pay for this. <laughs> I mean, I, I had secured myself. I did used to rock climb, so I had enough kind of like, okay, I know how to secure myself. But, man. But when, I have to tell you, there was, there was all kinds of things in this process, right? This was multiple different steps, you know? Multiple steps. Uh, and I could have paid somebody to do it in a weekend, but I did it over six months. And there was days where it's like, man, you know, I had the tunes cranking, and I'm just getting, getting into my groove, and I'm just loving it, and I'm seeing it come to And there's times like, I do not want to do this. And that's kind of like work outside the garden, right? But there are those glimpses. When this was done, I just felt like, wow. I just sat back. And those moments where you kind of have that feeling, those give you glimpses. And all of you, I would like for you to think about, what are those glimpses that God gives you? Those are meant to be signposts that your work one day will be something released from the curse and free. When whatever it is that you're applying yourself to, you see that success. You know, when you see a child you've poured yourself into and you see them, you know, suddenly they're getting it. A student, if you're a teacher, they're, they're, they're suddenly they're getting it. Or someone you're working with, you know, whatever it is in your field, what are those signposts? Those are reminders that God will redeem our work one day. And there's a whole sermon on that, which I'm not going to get into right now. But we get these glimpses, okay, uh, outside of the garden that, uh, that God is going to one day redeem all work. But one of the things that's true is that work is part of who we are. It's built into how God created us. It's a mark of our being in the image of God. And in fact, uh, that's why work is so wrapped up with our dignity, Okay. The person who disregards work, who just sees it all as a curse, all right, that person has a name in the Bible, and that name is sluggard, okay? The book of Proverbs, which, by the way, is the most politically incorrect book in the Bible because it has no problem calling people names, okay? Like, you're a fool, you're a sluggard, you know? Um, it's kind of refreshing, frankly. But anyway, um, it, it has this to say about the sluggard. Go to the ant, O oh sluggard. Consider her ways. Learn from, a, learn from an ant. You can hear the frustration, right? And be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there? Oh, sluggard. Some of you said that to your teenagers. When will you rise from your sleep? So, the, so you know, the book of Proverbs talks about the ant. And why is it drawing attention to an ant? Well, because it's saying, you know what? You were made to reflect your creator who works so well. And you're missing it, but even this little piece of creation is doing a better job of reflecting the creator who works. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that incredible? You're failing in your vocation to reflect your creator, but even this little piece, you know, and we could go into it, you know, um, the sluggard is bad news. Basically, a life where you see work as a curse is a failed life, okay? The sluggard fails to, 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 to plan ahead. Here's the ant. The sluggard procrastinates and makes excuses. There's one proverb that says, there might be a lion outside. I can't go to work. Like, oh, brother. 
A sluggard's uh, uh, relationships suffer, all the relationships, as, vin- as vinegar is to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. There's nothing worse than having somebody blow smoke in your face. So is a slugger to those who send them, right? Nobody, no, you don't want to be around somebody. I had, a t- I had a student this week complain, like, I got paired. Oh, it was actually, it was Arwen. She's like, she's like, Robert, I got paired with the laziest kid in the class. I'm like, that's why I would never put people in teams, because I'm feeling for you. She's got a sluggard as a partner. Great. Smoke to the eyes right there for our daughter. Okay. Um, but there's another thing that happens in the Proverbs, you see, the word sluggard is intentionally a little bit degrading because the point is this, is that your humanity and your dignity is connected to your work, all right? Now, you've got to be careful here. You don't want to say that your humanity and dignity is your work, okay? Your dignity is being in the image of God. But because one of the ways we reflect God is through work, human dignity is deeply connected. And so the Proverbs also have no problem mocking people, <laughs> okay, in order to show how this is not what you want. I mean, this is instruction. Proverbs is written instructions to help people. And so you have Proverbs like this. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. And if you read Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, um, this is in Purgatorio. There's, they're, the, they're the slothful. They're just rolling, rolling around, right? I mean, we did, I didn't do the Inferno. There they are buried in their own excrement, refusing to move, Okay. It's just like, you are actually, when you don't embrace work, you're actually, there's a dehumanizing thing. Um, another proverb, Proverbs 19, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's weary of bringing it to his mouth. That's an insult. Like, it's this insulting thing. And the point is, it's kind of like, I mean, in arguments, this is where you just show somebody, like, how ridiculous your position, where is that going to take you? What are you going to do if you keep going down this path? And we all have these conversations with ourselves, don't we? Like, okay, like, if I keep it on, what's going to happen, right? And so, work is not the curse. And the book of Proverbs is trying to instruct us that work is not It's part of way, what we were made for. Um, and in fact, God gets his hands dirty as a gardener. God gets his hands dirty as, in order to restore the world. God cares about all kinds of work. All work matters. I love these pictures by Van Gogh. You know, he loved to take a picture of people that were peasants and paint them beautifully. And he has that kind of enchanted style, all right? All right, modern art, not all modern art's bad. Contemporary art is questionable, not all modern art, <laughs> okay? And if you know anything about Van Gogh's style, what Van Gogh is doing here is Van Gogh is drawing out the enchanted nature of creation and that when we work in very physical and tangible ways, because God embraces all work, all work is a way in which we reflect God, we then, therefore, in certain ways, then reflect our creator. And Van Gogh, who was uh, actually wanted to be a, wanted to be a missionary, um, want to be a pastor, um, is portraying that here. So God uses all kinds of work. And if you look at the, the story of the Bible, there's all kinds of workers. Joseph was in politics. Daniel was a student. Basilel was an artist. Lydia was a businesswoman and textile designer. And Jesus, when God came to earth, he was a carpenter. I love that. I don't know if he would have joined the union, but he was a carpenter. We can debate that. Um, so this idea that all work, all work matters you know, we just celebrated Reformation Day, and one of the great things that came out of Reformation Day is there was this rediscovery that all work matters. All work matters. Um, if you understand the medieval church, the medieval church, the, the basic paradigm was the church needs to dominate all of society. Think about kind of the dome of a basilica. We're going to come over everything and bring all of society underneath our sphere and our control, right? 
And so in the medieval church, what you had in that paradigm is you had a hierarchy of work. You had the spiritual work of priests and bishops and monks, and then you had the lesser work of peasants, you know, and governors and artisans. And there was clearly a two-tier system, so such that the idea was that some work matters. And then in the Reformation, you also had the Radical Reformation, the Radical Reformation. This was the idea that the church needs to completely separate from society. The church needs to be completely separate, its own, uh, its, well, its own polis, its own world, right? And so, again, you have this idea that only, uh, really, the, the work of the church, and any time you can kind of connect that work to the church, that's really work that matters. But it was the Reformers who actually said, no, 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 wait a second here. The church needs to be in the world, but not of it. The church needs to be engaged with the world without becoming absorbed in the world, right? And so as a result of that, all work matters. Uh, Luther, in his uh, Christian address to the Christian nobility, says this. He says, there has been a, fix, a fiction by which the pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate. Princes, lords, artisans, and peasants are the temporal estate, that two, kind of that hierarchy I just mentioned. But all Christians are truly of the spiritual state, and there's no difference among them. All are consecrated as priests. As St. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Every single one of you in your work is doing the work of God. That's why we pray for people in e-commerce. That's why we pray for the people that are going to be busy during this season. Because we follow Luther on this one that all of us in our work are honoring God and have the capacity to do God's work. And Luther goes into this in his uh, commentary on Psalm 145, 16, where it says that God gives food to every living thing. Luther says, well, how does God give food to every living thing? How does he do it? And then Luther's like, duh, through bakers, duh, through people that deliver the bread, through people that sell the bread. Yeah, God could send an angel and show up and be like, here's your bread. But God chooses to use people in order to give food. And then in the section of Psalm 146, where it says that, that God guards the gates of the city, Luther says, well, how does he guard the gates of the city? Yeah, he could send angels, but actually he used police officers and security guards. That's how God guards things. And this is part of Luther's whole doctrine of the masks of God, that when God shows up, God shows up primarily wearing a mask. God loves masks. God loves to show up in ways that we don't expect, very humbly, very much like, I didn't see that as God, but that's how God shows up for Luther. What else in all of our work, you know, that we're doing, what is it that we actually have people that are the masks of God in our life and in our work? Who made the coffee this morning a mask of God? Who's greeting a mask of God? You know? Who's doing all around us are masks of God? Luther would say they're all around us. And this is a beautiful thing. So just to kind of, this is the transition part of the sermon, okay, FYI, in case you're wondering where this is going now. Um, where have we been? Well, we've seen that God is a worker, right? God gets his hands dirty, unlike all the other gods, God is a God that embraces work. And we've seen that God, that, that God actually creates us in his image. And one of the ways in which we then reflect God is through working, okay? And we've also seen now that work is an incredibly important thing because it's one of the ways in which we then embrace God's calling for us 
One of our first vocations as human beings is to work. We embrace that fundamental vocation. It's something to all human beings, by the way, not whether or not you're a Christian or not. Like all human beings have been given that by virtue of creation. And so we embrace that and it becomes a vehicle that God uses to bless the world. This is one of the ways that God wants to bless the world is through our mundane everyday work. Now, when that begins to kind of get into us, something happens, okay? Oh, here's a great quote from Luther on Mass of God. What else in all of our work of God, whether in field or garden city, these are the Mass of God's which God wants to bless us, got it. Okay, how does this vision, all right? How does, I know, I just, you already got that point. Okay, so how does these three things, these things coming together, that God is a worker, work is a good thing, yes, it's got the curse, but it's still something that God, God has given us to, and it's a way we can bless the world. When that starts hitting us, what are some of the ways we can see that change and transition? Okay, so I'm just going to give us four ways we can, we can kind of test. These are litmus tests to see if this understanding of work, if we're getting it, okay? And here's the first one. The first thing is it'll give you a new motivation. You know, one of the things that, that you know, we, we're tempted to do, work is so incredibly important to us. And one of the things that we're tempted to do is just is when we get frustrated just to throw it away. It's a curse. Forget it. I never want to work again. Okay? Have you ever had something that just, just fails? I remember the first time, when I first started preaching when I was a young man, I remember some of my sermons were just bombs. I mean, I, this might be a bomb. I know. I'm sorry if it is. But, you know, it, they were just bombs. And I would work so hard. And then I had people being like, eh. I remember, I remember I preached on gossip one time. And the first thing that happened afterwards, some lady marched up and just gossiped to me after I preached on gossip. And I was like, this is not working. And I just want to throw it away. You know, but I stuck out. I'm like, we got to feel like you've called me to do this, you know? So one thing we can do is we can curse our work and just say, forget it. These kids will never learn. We forget it. The other temptation is for us to find our identity in our work. See, these are two different sides of the spectrum, right? It's so tempting. We are made in the image of God, and one of the ways we reflect God is through work, but we are tempted to replace our fundamental identity as being in the image of God with our fundamental identity being what we do for a living. In fact, it's what we ask people when we meet them. What do you do for a living, right? And that's so tempting. And so many people go to work and their fundamental thing to do is that they're establishing some kind of sense of status, some kind of sense of okayness. Maybe they're acquiring material goods so they can show them. Maybe it's not in their work. It's the work will provide the things that I can show people to. Like, look at this. Come to my house. Look at this. What I got here. Look at that. Look at all these things. Okay, see you later. Like, who are you? I just saw all your things. Like, who are you? <clears throat> so there's this great temptation. You know, Genesis 1, 11, 4, uh, we have this massive work project. Okay, it's where we see everybody getting together and working, but the problem is, look why they're working. Come, they said, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens that we may make a name for ourselves. That's the temptation, to make a name for yourself, right? That's the temptation. And so uh, one of the ways that we can see if we're getting really the point of, that God, that the Bible teaches about work is, you can, you can see it by why you're doing what you're doing. You can do inventory, okay? When you realize your work was meant to reflect God and that God is the one who gives you your identity, then you can actually reframe your work. So if you practice law, you don't practice law because you get to win in fights, which shows that you're right and you're somebody, or you don't practice law to acquire things. You practice law so that you can fill the world with justice. You practice business 
not to buy status objects, but to be generous and provide for the livelihood of others in order to create an entire chain in which you can bless others because they have a way to feed their families. You teach not as a pundit because you get to look like the man who knows everything, but you teach in order to be generous to help your students know because knowledge is a way in which you can bless them, provide them with that, that gift of knowledge. If you practice medicine, you don't practice medicine to elevate yourself, whatever. It's to care for the health of others. If you take up art, you don't take up art in order to express your deep woundedness and make everybody aware of your deep narcissistic implosion. To excite the imagination, to open up the imagination. And we could go on, but this will give us a new motivation for our work. The second thing is, it will give us a new understanding of the status of our work. Some of you are listening to this, and there's a lot, I mean, you know, you're a preacher, you're thinking, who are all my audience? Well, some of you, some of you have a job you do not like. You're like, I have to do this job right now, I need to provide. Some of you, yeah, and maybe there's a lot of people, maybe different generations, younger generations, maybe you've completed all the, the certification and now what are you doing? Yeah, I'm driving an Uber. I'm working as a barista when I should be doing X, Y, or Z. And you feel a little gypped. Some of you are unemployed. You're in a season where you just cannot, it's like you can't, you don't know why. It's just not happening. Some of you are retired, and so your formal job life is over. Some of you are dealing with health issues in which you get tired after a little bit. You're like, I don't know, like, I'm not, you know, most of my work is behind me, it feels like. You know, here's the message for all of us, is that all of our work matters, all of it. And even if it's just something where it's like, okay, I can't only do so much today because I'm dealing with some health stuff, in that doing, you can still honor God in the small things, the or, you know, organizing your medicine cabinet or whatever it is that you feel you should be doing that day. There's a way in which you can connect with God in that moment and express, to, uh, express your status as being a reflection of the God, you know, the God who works. Um, another way you get this is you understand that you have a new partner. This wonderful verse that was read by Jesse Establish the work of our hands, O Lord. Establish the work of our hands. I love that. Let your work be shown to your servants and establish the work of our hands. Those two are in a relationship, by the way. The work of your hands are established as you begin to see the work of God. Those two are in it. Look, this is the, this is, if you're looking for a take-home from this sermon, here's a take-home, Okay. You, you should have your number one work partner be God. And, and like, man, let me tell you, like this is something I've been working on. I try to pray about the weird things. You know, I mean, sometimes we get into this relationship with God's kind of like, well, I can't, I can't pray about that. There's like certain things you're like, oh, I would just never even mention that to God. You gotta mention it all to God. You know, you, and, and make God your work partner. Continuously talk to God before you start your day. Like, Lord, you know what today is like. You know what the situation is. You know, you know that I got to preach and then I got this and I got that and you know my, the gas tank or whatever it is. Bring God into those details. Make God your number one work partner. This guy, Brother Lawrence, this is the example. He says, the time of business doesn't differ for me from the time of prayer. This guy ran a massive kitchen, okay? I don't know if it was like Hell's Kitchen, I don't know what, but he ran this massive kitchen, right? All these different moving pieces in a kitchen. And, he's, and, he, and the whole book he wrote on the practice of God is about how he's learned to stay in connection with God as his partner in his work. 
Bring God into the details of your work. Pray about all the details of your work. Bring them before God. Because, why? Because God wants to establish the work of your hands. There's that verse, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who work. I was talking to a guy, I, I don't want to reveal who it is, but a major, major uh, person in law who you know, ran for judge and all this stuff. And, and just recently kind of had this kind of like the balls dropped where suddenly all this legal work that he had done throughout his life for 20-something years, it's all getting threatened to be completely undone. And he was asking hard questions. Like, is all this in vain? And you know what? Our work, very few of us are going to like produce a, you know, a Sistine Chapel that people are going to be looking at in years. But our work can be carried into eternity when we make the Lord our working partner. And then finally, this of course will give us a new appreciation for all of the people around us, all the masks of God that we encounter every day, all the time. I, this has been one of the most amazing things for me is that God has created my heart. As I've, as I've been reflecting on this, you know, you see people that are serving you. Anytime you see somebody serving you, that is a mask of God. Anytime somebody's providing for you, that is a mask of God. They might be an atheist who hates God, but God is still using them for his bidding to bring blessing and flourishing in the world and to look at them. And I, I mean, one of the things that I just, I love stopping people in their work where, and you know, you're just one of many people and stop and say, you know what? Thank you so much. You don't need to say, you know, you're a mask of God. They'll be like, you're weird. Okay, you don't, don't freak them out. But just thank you so much. Because that person right there is an instrument that God is using to bring flourishing and blessing into the world and to pay attention to that and to thank them genuinely from the heart. I'm telling you, it has opened up more doors for me to have wonderful conversations. And it helps build the sinew of our social fabric. It helps us become people that are just gracious and winsome Christians, which we should be, instead of like, you know, well, here's a tip. Here's, you know, here's, here's my tip. Here's a track. Come on, that's not treating a mask of God like the mask of God. The mask of God is, thank you so much for the way you've served this table, right? Thank you so much. So it just makes you a, a gracious person as, uh, as, as it does. So, so let's bring the horses into the stable. Um, this whole thing of the mask of God <clears throat> really points to something else that Luther wants to get at, which is that when God did his greatest work, he himself put on a mask. You know, when God did his greatest work, he himself came in disguise. It says in Philippians that he humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant, the lowest of all servants. God himself came to clean up our mess, humanity's mess. He took on our sin and our ugliness and all of the world's muck and mire. And he's done that for us. And we celebrate that each week with this, this feast here, which represents his sacrifice of his body and his blood. And so we're going to separate the ultimate work of God right now, God's work for us on the cross.